Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. If you've been walking with God now for some time, then I'm sure you've come back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, again and again and again. There's just so much depth in this one sentence. Let me just read it for you. I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm sure you've heard a hundred sermons and have read a hundred books on this one verse. And I want to add to that corpus of messages, if I may. This is a verse that describes the crucified life. Paul references it again in Romans chapter 6 and again in Colossians chapter 3. But Galatians 2 verse 20 is just so powerful. I am crucified. I don't live. Christ lives. At first reading, it seems as though God took me out of the picture. And if you've had a Christian life where you think it's all God and it's none of you, then that's a good start. It's a good start even to Galatians 2 verse 20. But I want to tell you there is more. Because Paul would say, even though I am dead, nevertheless, I still live. So it's it's not just God that does it all and God that overpowers and overtakes me. It's as though I still live but I live in him and he lives in me. So it's not the replaced life. It's the ingrafted life. It's a life of God in me and me in him, where the two have become one per the metaphor of a man and a woman becoming one. In this message, I want to touch on engrafted spirituality, not just the spirituality where it's all God and I do nothing, or spirituality where it's all me and none of God. The New Testament revelation is an engrafted spirituality where it's me in him and he in me together. His life flows into me and I abide in him. And together we bear fruit in the Spirit. I want to touch on this message, and I I believe that if you can carefully listen and absorb deep into your spirit the truths that are expounded in this message, that you will live a spiritual life according to the New Testament pattern, according to the teachings of the apostles, and particularly the teachings of Paul. Beloved, the ingrafted life, Christ in me and me in him, is the sure teaching 
of the New Testament. And I hope it blesses you and you come into its reality. I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. If Paul's sentence stopped there, we could even call it the exchanged life. That first half of that verse 20 seems as though the spiritual life is about an exchange. And this is what gets us as Christians in trouble. Let me explain. We read that verse, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ. And we, we superimpose the word exchange. That is, I'm nothing, He's everything. So God, if you want me to love my neighbor, you've got to do it. Because it's not me. If you want me to go to Africa, you just pick me up and, and you take me to Africa. Because I'm crucified. And that sentence, I have been crucified with Christ, has become a cop-out for Christians not to be used by God. We hide in fear to step out in vulnerability in our partnership because of the first part of this verse. We almost read into it, I am nothing, I have no intellect, I have no emotion, I have no um, a, a dream or hope or purpose, it's, it's all God. And that notion... That sentence is beautiful. Yes, it is all God. And it's beautiful to say, God, it's all you. Amen. It's beautiful. But have you noticed that you have to pray for someone? Uh, you have to hop on an airplane and go to another country, come to legacy. You play a part. And so we cannot say that the Christian life is an exchanged life. God didn't do away with you where you have no role, no part. We have to look maybe to the rest of the sentence. He says, I do now live and I still live in the flesh. But I live in faith, in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. So it's not an exchanged life, a do-away life, a obliterated, annulled life, where you're a robot that is manipulated by God. You're just a puppet on the string and he's the marionette. This is not what Paul is teaching the Christian life is like. And this is what we do. We are in our prayer closet, which is a good thing. Then we say, God, if you want me to ask forgiveness, then you open up my mouth. And, and, and you speak it through me. Or God, if you want me to, to preach, then you'll just sort of open up my mouth and understanding and fully make me understand the Bible and I'll be able to preach. Like, God, you do it all. And that is a sincere prayer that we've had before God. Oh God, it's all you. Oh God, you, you, beautiful. That's, you're on the right track, but you're slightly misguided. When Paul says it's no longer I, he is trying to say, I'm not the source of the way I live anymore. 
I'm not the fuel within me anymore. I'm dead to my own ego and ambition and my own agenda and will. The fuel of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin and death. I'm dead to that. But yeah, I still live. But I'm plugged into Christ. So beloved, the word that I want to propose is the word engrafting. I have been grafted into Christ. I've been cut from my previous living, the world, sin, death, shame, guilt, inferiority, confusion, whatever. Now I'm grafted into Christ. So I live. I have a mind, but my mind is engrafted into Christ. So Christ's mind gets to come into me. I still have emotions, but Christ's compassion comes into me. I still have dreams and hopes, but Christ's dreams and hopes, His economy, His eternal agenda begins to supersede, exceed, trump my agenda. So now I live, but not I, Christ, the engrafted life. So here are just some initial suggestions of the process of ingrafting. And we know it has to do with cutting. When two organic entities are grafted into each other on both sides, there's cutting. And in the biblical imagery, cutting is crucifixion. No wonder Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Christ was cut on the cross. I am cut. So how did this happen? Well, point number one. Christ's dying on the cross, beloved, accomplished really two things. Among many, but let me be short. First, when Jesus died, he dealt with the forgiveness of your sins. Notice the plural there. Christ died so that your sins can be forgiven. How? Through the blood of His body. The effect, the consequence of His dying was so that you could experience this thing called justification. Acquittal. Where... All of the trespasses that you have committed, all the sins and ways in which you have come short, all of that has been forgiven and annulled and acquitted. The biblical term is the word justification. So why did Christ die? So you can be justified, that is made righteous, so that you can be free from the penalty of sin. Okay, the penalty is the big word I want you to notice there. 
In uh, John 1 verse 29, uh, the baptizer says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we know that Christ's dying deals with all of our transgressions, our sins. And He justifies us so that there's no more penalty for all that you have done wrong. Unfortunately, this is where most of us as Christians stop with the crucifixion of Christ. We've never bothered to understand that Christ did more than forgive you of sins. Christ also came after the sinner, the one committing the sins. So, beloved, look here. Standing in front of you is a man who does actions. I am the sinner that commits acts of sin. Which came first, the acts or the person? The person. So if Christ only dealt with my wrong actions, but not my wrong person, beloved, I'm not saved. I'm just justified. Salvation is more than a get-out-of-jail-free card. Salvation has to change my nature, not just correct my wrongdoings. Have you as a child at times done the right thing for your parents, but your heart was not in it? <laughs> That's the way I lived as a kid. So my parents could look at me a certain way and say, wow, Francois is polishing his school shoes, something I had to do every day. I did the action of polishing the school shoes, but the person polishing the school shoes was angry and bitter towards his parents. So really, really, if, if we get down to bedrock, which is worse, the dirty shoes or the broken person. Reason with me, saints? Would you have a kid that's a yes ma'am, yes dad, but in their heart they loathe you? Could you potentially stomach a kid's faults even if their inner man is correct? Yeah, if my kid has a pure heart and they do make mistakes, beloved, I have tremendous grace on that person. But man, what will upset me is if my kids are just goody tissues going through the motions, but inside they don't love dad. They despise dad. So the cross, to engraft you into this new life of God, this new life of resurrection, it had to really do two things at a minimum. It had to deal with the consequences and the actions but it cannot stop there. It's got to go to the sinner. We say it this way. Most of us think I'm a sinner because I commit sin. <laughs> because I do all of these wrong things, that makes me a sinner. I say to you, if you can hear, no. It's because I am a sinner that I commit sin. Can you all follow with me? It's who I am that makes what I do wrong. Most of you think that what you've done wrong is, is, is making you a sinner. That's not the truth. 
You are a sinner who commits sins. So Christ, on the one hand, deals with the issue of sin. He justifies you from it. He absolves you, releases you, acquits you from the penalty of sin. But he's got to go deeper. Before we go deeper, one more reference here. Listen up. When Jesus died for your sins, everything you've done wrong and will yet do wrong, at that time, you did not die with him. He died alone, completely abandoned for your sins. But when he came and dealt with you as a sinner, the core of your being, you were crucified with him, the Bible teaches. Can you follow with me? And this is a little mystical, but this is the process God went through to graft you into him. When Christ died as your substitute, as your lamb, as your offering for sins, he did it all by himself. And when he justifies you, and releases you from the penalty of sin. It's all because of Him. Amen. Amen. But now, to change your nature, He invites you into His death, and He crucified. So when the Lord hung on that cross, you were nowhere near Him pertaining to sins. But when Christ hung on that cross, dealing with you, the sinner, you were actually crucified in Him, Paul teaches. So Christ died for two things. The second thing is that Christ had to deal with me, the sinner, the actual person. So he dealt with the sinner who committed the sins. And how did he deal with me, the sinner? Did he teach me new things to do? Did he, according to Paul's understanding, did he reform me, teach me new behaviors? No. According to Paul's understanding of the sinner, me, the person, Christ took me straight to the cross. No help to be a better person. You know, when we pray, oh God, help me to be a better person. There is no concept of that. When God wanted to deal with my pitiful condition, the sinner, the only remedy that God had for me was to crucify me in Christ. And Paul's going to teach us how to connect with this in Romans 6. You will have to believe in your crucifixion. I wish Paul had explained a few more things. I really wish for an inquisitive mind. Um, I really so longed for him to explain more things. But it's not to be fully understood. It's to be apprehended by faith. So God dealt with the sinner by not educating him, taking him to Christian school, uh, launching a behavioral reformation program, sending him to legacy, sending him to church. God had none of these things intended for the sinner. For the sinner, straight to the cross. That's why, beloved, there are two people who hung next to your Lord on the cross to demonstrate that there are people dying with him. And Paul says, when he died there, mystically, I died with him. So, I am being crucified with and in Christ. The effect 
of this dying, this crucifixion, is my identification and my ingrafting into His death and resurrection. And I'm grafted into His cross and into His death. So when He died to the old creation and the old way of living, which Colossians teaches us in His death, He wiped out everything pre-existing and started a new creation. So Paul says, mystically, I was put into Christ on that cross. So when he breathed his last to the old way of living, I breathed my last to the old way of living. So much so that when he came up in a new way of living, mystically, I can come up in a new way of living. Ingrafting is what takes place here, identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Why is Paul teaching us this? You know, Paul had this understanding, this revelation that was just beyond what even the other apostles had. The other apostles understood very much that Christ died for our sins. If you read in the book of Acts and you notice the early sermons of Peter, Peter does not reference our co-crucifixion with Christ at all. They did not have that understanding. Peter would say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. All that you've done wrong, your murder, your lust, your greed, all of your law-breaking sins. And that was the message of the apostles. They preached the forgiveness of sins. Here comes Paul and he preaches the crucifixion of the sinner. Why did Christ crucify the sinner? Beloved, here it is. Look at your notes. So that you can live over the power of sin and death. Why did Christ forgive you of your sins? So that you can be free from the penalty of sins. The penalty. Why did Christ crucify you, the thief on that cross with him? Why were you crucified according to Paul? So that the law of sin and death and the power that sin has over you and death has over you to not raise you from the dead, to keep you defeated, that power can be done away with. So the Christian then lives in a twofold dynamic. We are justified and free from any penalty of wrongdoing. But even more, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a powerful life over the domination of sin and death, over the dictates. That's why we can grow, we can mature, we can live out godly lives. If Christ had just forgiven me of my sin, I would have continued to live and make mistakes, make mistakes, never grow, and just constantly say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. 
But Christ destroys the power of sin and death also. The, the bullying, domination, uh, abusive power of sin and death. That's why a Christian can actually grow. We can become holy. We can become godly. And in time when we die in the body, we will be resurrected. Death will have no victory over me in the final say. So a Christian's life is a victorious life on every level. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So when I sin, beloved, you just say sorry. When you commit sin, you say, Father, I've blown it. And y'all, I have to do this a lot. You don't have to try to do anything to, to earn freedom from, from sin. It's already procured. You just have to confess, Lord, I blew it. And yeah, you are free from the penalty. But even more, Christ died to the, so the sinner can be crucified. Why the sinner? So that the sinner can be free from the lordship of sin and death and the power of sin and death. Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. What, what is sin? Pray tell, what is death? Uh, I learned this from another man and so I think it is worthy to be repeated if I can do this properly. In Romans 8, Paul describes sin and death as a law. That is, it is a regulation. It is a force and an entity inside of the sinner. And it is these strings that are connected to the sinner. And no matter what the sinner wants to do, the law of sin and death usurps him. And we see that in Romans 7. If I want to do good, sin takes a hold of it. If I want to avoid evil, I can't. Sin takes a hold of it. Sin is this entity. It's a law. It's like the law of gravity. For instance, every time I drop the pencil, a universal law is going to kick into motion immediately. I may not understand what is happening here with the acceleration and Newton's laws and everything, but it's just a principle. It is a universal governance that this pencil is always going to drop, always going to drop. This is in a way what sin is. Sin is just, it's always going to miss the mark. It's always going to, there is a law that even if you try to do good, sin is going to usurp it. We know this happened with the Israelites. In their worship of God, they committed sin. Even in the good worship of God, it's just a law kicks in and they're in idolatry and taking the name of the Lord in vain. And so we have it even to this day. No matter what you want to do, sin is going to usurp it and a law is going to kick in. Christ crucified you so that law can be replaced. Christ crucified you so that a law of life can come into us. Where the automatic old principles and dynamics don't just kick in automatically, but a resurrection life 
can now kick in and overcome these situations. So sin is a kind of a law, but what is death? If I can use another example using the same pencil here. Most of us want to keep this pencil in the air because we know this is a good thing. This is what God wants. He wants this pencil in the air for me to live a beautiful Christian life. And I can stand here with this little pencil for a day or two, but a law is going to kick in of fatigue and of exhaustion and give me a couple of days and my arm is going to do what? It's going to drop. Why? Because I'm bound to the law to drop this pencil. So in my self-strength, I can, I can do the best I can for as long as I possibly can, but sooner or later, it's going to conquer me. The law trumps me, the law of sin and death. So for this law of sin and death to no longer have jurisdiction over me, what does God do? He crucifies me. Then He resurrects me into a different law called the law of the Spirit of life. All that to say that most of us, we live the Christian life constantly dropping, constantly dropping, oh, sorry, Lord, sorry, Lord. And many of us, we hold the Christian life even out of our own strength to, to keep it beautiful. But it's just a matter of time, you know this, before that law kicks in and it conquers me. Now, Christ crucified you with Him so that you are no longer grafted into this dynamic where sin always gets the better of you, where death always triumphs. No matter how hard you try, it always triumphs. Christ crucified you to that relationship. And now you are married to a new relationship. A relationship where it's not me holding and clutching things. It's no longer I who live. But I've been grafted into a man who can hold it up. A man who was resurrected from the dead. So his resurrection is my resurrection. But by his strength, I live by his achievement, not my own. get grafted in? Well, you were not grafted in when your sins were forgiven. You were grafted in when you were co-crucified with Christ. Why were you crucified? So the, the connection to the old power of death and sin and death can be done away with and you can live in newness of life. Beloved, according to Paul, the Christian life has power to it. It has vitality to it. And the Christian life can actually overcome the issues of sin. Can you and I grow and overcome the issues of sin? Apparently so. Amen. Okay. Point number two. The I 
that has been crucified is really the old man of Romans 6. When Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified, it's a safe bet that in Romans 6, he speaks about the old man. That's the I. The old relationship I had with sin and death. Sin and death has not been done away with at this time. It's still a law that is operative in the sons of disobedience. In time, sin and death will be fully done away with. But until the end of time, when sin and death is swallowed up in victory, God took me out of the picture. Christ crucified me with him so I can begin to live under a different law. So my old man no longer has jurisdiction over me, but I get to live in a new reality. And this is Christian growth. This is Christian maturity to come into these new things. Okay, the bullet says the old man I was initially fueled by Satan. And I don't know if I've told you this, but what does sin mean? I came up with an acrostic. Sin means Satan's intrinsic nature. My old man was yoked to Satan's intrinsic nature. And in that nature is the law of sin and death. So Christ, he went straight to the sinner, the recipient of sin and death. And he crucifies this ego, this old man, and removes me from Satan's intrinsic nature. Satan's influence over me. Now... I can be influenced by God's nature. Praise the Lord. By crucifying the sinner in Christ, God rendered the old I extinct in the death of Christ. There is no need or room for the old man, the old I, in the new creation realities of God. Christ alone is all. I am cut from the old man crucifixion. I am brought mystically, strangely into Christ. And now God no longer sees me as an old man. A sinner. Now God sees me as a son, a saint. So I ask the question, how is the believer crucified in Christ? I propose this as an answer. How do I experience crucifixion? How is this crucifixion possible? Well, beloved, it's entirely a matter of God's word. It's not a matter of intellect or feeling or understanding. I try to give some understanding. But have you noticed how dismally short we fall? It's not that we fully understand how did I die 2,000 years ago? And then furthermore, we've come to understand Christ wasn't even crucified 2,000 years ago. Did y'all know that? Christ was crucified before the earth began. So how do you, how do you, excuse me, how do you understand that? Christ didn't die 2,000 years ago. He died before the foundations of the earth. How did I die in him? But he died before earth came about. I'm lost. I don't understand how all these things chronologically fit in. So how are you crucified? It's entirely a matter of God saying so. 
It's a matter of God speaking. It's a matter of God's viewpoint. So here it is. It's entirely from God's viewpoint that you're crucified. He identified all mankind in Christ, just like he identified all mankind in Adam. Therefore, as in Adam all died, in Christ all are made alive. It's entirely a matter of God's doing, God's word, God's viewpoint. It's not a matter of my mind, my emotions, or my trying harder to be in Christ. And this is what Paul is trying to say. Listen, the life that I live in the flesh, I do this by faith. I live by faith. It's a matter of God's truth, not my understanding. It's God's viewpoint. God says I'm dead to the old. God says I'm forgiven. God says I'm justified. God says I'm a part of a brand new creation. All things have become new. It's not my experience or my understanding or my trying. It's entirely me of by faith saying, I believe this. So how will you experience crucifixion with Christ? It's an issue of faith. It's an issue of faith. That's why Romans 6 says, reckon yourselves dead. Consider, your Bible says, yourself dead. You don't feel dead. You don't look dead. You feel like sin and death still lords over you. According to God, sin and death cannot lord over you. Then why do I sin? Because you wanted to. It's getting quiet in here. Those of you who say, the devil made me do it. You can only say that in your unregenerate condition. Now that you're regenerated, you're free from the law of sin and death. The only reason I went back to Egypt is because I wanted to. I chose to. Amen. You can no longer say the devil made me do it. This is another thing we teach here at Legacy. Do you know why Jesus died? Jesus died to give you your choice back. Jesus died to give you again your free will. When you were born into this world, Satan had usurped your will. So everything you did was for yourself. It was under a deceptive, manipulative force called the law of sin and death. And you lived for sin. Your will just naturally gravitated to sin. Christ comes and he crucifies you. From God's viewpoint, he gave you a brand new will. You can now choose to sin or you can choose to submit yourself to God. On the back there, point number three, faith is needed to appropriate Christ's substitutionary death as well as his inclusionary death. And notice how I write it for you. Christ's substitution justifies you, but his inclusion engrafts you. Does that make sense? So Christ died in two ways, to justify you, and he did that as the Lamb of God. But Christ also died so you can die in him. He died for you and with you as the sinner. Why? So you can be engrafted into his resurrection and experience the power of the overcoming life. All this is appropriated by faith. Those of you that say, explain more, I will try. Those of you that say, tell me more, I, I, I'm writing books on it. Uh, hello, just start with the Bible. There's already a lot written down in here. 
those of you that want to know more, they, there's great books that I have that explain all this. But in the end, no amount of preaching, no amount of explanation, or no amount of movie watching or music listening will bring you into its reality. The life that I now live, I live by faith. Faith is to apprehend, to appreciate, to accept, and to appropriate that which already exists in the view of God. That's why the Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Beloved, we need faith to enter into the reality of our co-crucifixion. We don't need faith for more airplanes and Porsches and Ferraris, but we have twisted faith again into a perversion of all sorts of rabbit trails. But the faith that Paul is talking about is to believe the things of God, to believe God. His viewpoint says dead to sin, crucified, old man done away with. So I have to just... Appreciate it, accept it, and appropriate it. I must reckon according to the truth of God's Word, not reckon according to my experience or feeling or understanding. The Christian life is one of reckoning according to what God says. And if you do not believe what Paul said is true, then tear it out. Wipe it out. Re-edit it. But it's one of the basic principles of the Christian life as we believe the way it's written down, this is true. This was Paul's experience. And I believe it. Paul believed it. I believe it. In closing, Jesse Penn Lewis, an author from England in the 1800s, a lady, but this lady, she said, if the difference between Christ dying for us and our dying with Him has not been recognized, acknowledged, and applied, it may be safely affirmed that the self is still the dominating factor in life. So this is how you grow in God consciousness also, is by setting your mind on life, on Christ, not on sin and trying to uphold this law of sin and death. But to present yourself to God, again, according to Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 12, to present yourself to God and say, Lord, you be the law of life. I don't owe the law my attention. I don't owe good my attention. I don't try to avoid evil. I'm learning to live by Christ. And in living by Christ, you live out the law. You do good according to the Father's power. You avoid evil according to the Father's power. And you live a triumphant overcoming life. It's actually possible. Why? Because of the principle of engrafting. It's not that God is there and you're here and He's just occasionally giving you the Holy Ghost to give you a little power to get by for the day. That is religious spirituality. In Christ, 
The two have become one. And I am needing to learn to live by that Lord's life and by His supply. And this indwelling Christ, why? I'm in Him, He's in me, the two are one. It's not the exchanged life, it's the ingrafted life.